I wonder, what has this past week been like for you? What about the past month or year? When you look at your life and when you look at the world around you, how does it make you feel? My guess is, if you're anything like me, things seem a little bit mad. On a personal level, we all find ourselves juggling different priorities, different responsibilities. For some, it might be balancing that thriving social life with school or uni work. Maybe it's trying to decide where to go next academic year. For others of us, it will be trying to find that sweet spot between time at work and time at home. It could be trying to maintain our presence and involvement at church. Or maybe it's caring for loved ones. Depending on our situation, we might be trying and failing to achieve 18 different things at once. Or we might be struggling to stay afloat as we're faced with one singular, seemingly impossible task. And then, if we start looking past our immediate surroundings, we see a national police force woefully ill-funded. A government tearing itself apart as parties and politicians place their future votes ahead of the good of the nation. More fundamentally, in a desperate search for significance and in the name of personal freedom, our society's understanding of humanity is twisted further and further from biblical truth. Even the value of life is negotiable in the name of progress. When we read the news, whether it's local, national or worldwide, it's easy to become a little bit overwhelmed, isn't it? I find myself catching up on the day's events and wishing I could just crawl into a hole. If any of that rings true with you, and I hope I'm not the only one, read the book of Daniel. It was written specifically to encourage people in dire straits. The commentator, Tremper Longman, summarizes the book by saying, In spite of present appearances, God is in control. The book of Daniel picks up on the account of a small group of Israelites who were exiled as a result of the events in Kings, 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25. We step into a low point of Jewish history. As Judah is occupied, the temple looted, and the cream of the Israelite crop is taken to Babylon to serve the king Nebuchadnezzar there. In the first six chapters, we are given six accounts of people setting themselves up against God while Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, serve him faithfully. In each of these accounts, God's will is enacted, while those who oppose him are torn down. These more practical day-to-day experiences are there to give us, as the reader, confidence in the God who is sovereign in our normal lives. In the second six chapters, Daniel recounts five visions he receives from God. These visions are apocalyptic glimpses beneath the surface of the universe, and they're completely bewildering. They help remind us that he is God and we are not. The head-scratching nature of these chapters is deliberate. It helps us to see our own limitations, and as a result, praise God, for he has none. This evening, though, we're going to focus on chapter 4 of Daniel, one of the more practical experiences. I want us to see in that chapter that God is in control. I've been praying that we will see God at work as he takes Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, from pride to praise. 
We step into the fourth account from Daniel's exile in Babylon, the fourth and final story in that book to feature Nebuchadnezzar. It's also the central part of his family's descent into total idolatry. In the previous chapter, chapter 3, God foretells the demise of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, a message which Nebuchadnezzar rejects and rebels against. At the end of the chapter, though, Nebuchadnezzar does make some effort to praise God for his work in saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then in this chapter, the central part, Nebuchadnezzar descends further into this idolatry. He claims all his royal power and status as his own, rejecting the idea of God's provision. He's judged by God for it, and as we'll see, he eventually repents of his pride. This descent ends with his his successor, Belshazzar, rejecting God's authority and character entirely in chapter 5. But as I said, we'll be looking at chapter 4 this evening. Um, That's page 888 in the Blue Church Bibles and page 1381 in the large print ones. And our passage this evening takes the shape of a royal proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar to his entire empire. In it, he details his path from idolatrous pride to praising God as the Most High. This proclamation breaks down into four parts, but not quite in chronological order. So this evening we're going to see first the inevitable conclusion, an outburst of praise to the king. We're going to see the warning that human pride will not go unchallenged. We'll see opportunities as God offers grace again and again. And then finally we'll see the hope that repentance will lead to restoration. We're going to start by reading the chapter. Um, it's on, as I said, it's on page 888 in the Blue Church Bibles and 1381 in the large print ones. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs! How mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous, The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it there was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. 
From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals free from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given to the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with its beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you 
until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven. Because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Chapter 4, then, is a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar to his people across the Babylonian Empire. It is clearly written after the events it recounts have taken place. Nebuchadnezzar explains a dream he received from God and its subsequent fulfilment. This passage is unique to Daniel in that, after the royal address, it starts with an outburst of praise to the Most High God. All of the other historical accounts in Daniel are told chronologically. They develop conflict and suspense before telling us the eventual resolution. This chapter essentially begins with a spoiler. And the intention here seems to be that there should be no doubt as to the outcome of this conflict. Nebuchadnezzar comes out of these events a changed man. He says it is his pleasure to tell everyone about what God has done in his life. And so, knowing the outcome, the focus shifts to the events themselves. This powerful human king goes from, at best, a partial recognition of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, to praising him openly and wholeheartedly. The question for the rest of our passage is, why? Actually, with the benefit of hindsight, helpfully phrased as we've mentioned, we know why. Nebuchadnezzar is changed because despite present circumstances, God is in control. And we'll see this play out in the coming verses. Before we get on to that, there is another point to consider, though. The very fact that the structure of this passage is noteworthy highlights a gap in our thinking. It should never surprise us when glory is given to God. The passage Jake read for us earlier tells us that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And later, in Revelation chapter 5, John reveals a glimpse of the future to us. He says, He heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The Bible tells us all the way through that God fundamentally and completely deserves all the glory. His very nature makes him inherently worthy to receive all praise and honour, and he will not be cheated of it. Everyone has a choice. They will either praise God now willingly, or on Jesus' return, everyone will be made to bend the knee. In Daniel's historic account then, just as now and in the future, the idea that praise will be given to the King of Kings is never in doubt. Even for Nebuchadnezzar, it is the inevitable conclusion. That should shape our perspective on evangelism, on how we interact with non-believers, and generally our whole lives. When we proclaim the gospel, or when we go into work, or into hospital, or we read the news, we shouldn't let ourselves operate under the illusion that the outcome of any of these events are uncertain. Whether it be street preaching or spreadsheets, scans or scandals, everything and everyone will give praise to God in the end. So don't ever, while you're living your life for Jesus, ask yourself if those around you will ever acknowledge Christ. The question to ask is when will they? And what will the consequences be? Let the truth of God's sovereignty give you confidence to live out your faith. And let it give you a sense of urgency as you show people the gospel. So having set out the context for his message, Nebuchadnezzar takes us back to the beginning and shows us in verses 4 to 27 the warning that pride will not go unchallenged. He sets the scene for us. Babylon seems to be enjoying a time of peace and prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar is at home, contented. But a dream invades his peace. This vision breaks into his well-being and it makes him afraid. He doesn't seem to know what the dream means, but it's clear based on his reaction that he doesn't think it's anything good. His response, predictably, if you've read the rest of Daniel, is to call together all of his wise men so that they can explain the dream to him. It's not clear whether he called everyone in except for Daniel and then only called Daniel when the rest failed, or whether there was some kind of process in which Daniel was the last to speak. What is clear is that Daniel is the only one of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors to be spoken of individually. He, as the only one to whom God has given special wisdom, is brought to our attention, highlighting that the conflict to come is between the king of Babylon and almighty God. The way Nebuchadnezzar speaks of and to Daniel in verses 8 and 9 reveal that he doesn't really understand Yahweh yet. He calls Daniel by his given Babylonian name, Belshazzar, which ties him to Nebuchadnezzar's native god. And he describes Daniel as one in whom the spirit of the holy gods rest. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar, as a polytheist, thinks of Daniel's god as one of many he can call on. In his mind, he's neutralized the king of the universe by making him just one of the deities. So, Daniel has been brought out as the only advisor not yet proven incapable of revealing the meaning of this dream. And Nebuchadnezzar tells him what he saw in his sleep. I looked, 
And there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was fruit for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree, and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. This dream centers around a tree, vast and strong. It's visible to everyone, and all the creatures on earth rely on it for shelter and provision. Now in Nebuchadnezzar's culture, the tree was an icon of their God's divine world order. In the same way, the king represented the realization of that order. He represented the God's order for life brought into reality. Nebuchadnezzar identifies himself in that, his dream with that cosmic tree. It's a true image of his God, the perfect man. Does that description sound vaguely familiar? I hope that it's a little bit too close to the biblical description of Jesus for your comfort. But then, a holy messenger, or a watcher, comes down from heaven. The word watcher is used in historical literature to refer to angels. So this is a messenger from God. He declares that the tree, that's Nebuchadnezzar, is to be stripped of all its height, its branches, its fruit, all of its glory. Everything that gave this tree stature and status is to be removed. And those that depended on it flee. It's a stark and complete fall, isn't it? Only the stump and the roots are left, a pathetic remnant of what was a glorious, towering monument of a tree. And if we read verse 15 in a rush, we might overlook a key word here, the word but. If verse 15 had said, and, as in, let the animals free, and let only the stump and roots remain, it might have had a different connotation. To understand this properly, it's helpful to know that in the original context, the word for stump here doesn't have the same meaning as it does in English. It's better read to mean shoot, or maybe sapling. You see, the tree is to be stripped of everything that makes it great, but a little of it is to be left behind. And the point is that this tree is not to be totally cut off, but left just able to survive and regrow. Again, the meaning of the iron and bronze bands is the source of some discussion, especially as they straddle a change in emphasis here. The messenger, after saying this, drops the tree metaphor and speaks directly about him, a man. The commentator Alex Barnes points out to us that, regardless of which character the bands relate to, the tree or the man, they're likely to have a protective element to them. Either they're protecting the remaining shoot of the tree, or they might be described as restraining the king in his madness. The shoot, the roots, and the bands convey hope. And the messenger from heaven closes his command with what is essentially an explanation of the dream. 
verse 15, going on about halfway. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets them over the lowliest of people. The tree imagery is left behind, and it is clear that the subject of this vision is a man, one who will be sent out to live like an animal for a long time, so that all will know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. So having told Daniel the dream, Nebuchadnezzar waits expectantly for an explanation. It might seem strange to us that neither he nor his wise men could figure it out. But it is important that Daniel, God's representative, gives Nebuchadnezzar his judgment. But on a side note, Daniel's relationship with his conquering and kidnapping boss here is quite remarkable, isn't it? Look at verses 19 and 27. Despite the horrific things that Nebuchadnezzar has done, despite the unfathomable damage he's caused to Daniel's home and nation, Daniel's attitude is one of deep concern. You might forgive him for being a little bit vindictive on hearing about his boss's comeuppance, but no. The tragic nature of what is to befall King Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel no joy. He's horrified by it. Nevertheless, with encouragement from the king, Daniel explains what the dream means. Nebuchadnezzar is represented by the tree, and just as the tree is torn down to almost nothing, Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose everything if he continues in his sinful pride. God the Most High has decreed that Nebuchadnezzar will lose his glory, his power, even his mind. He will be driven away from the people, and left to live like an animal for seven times. There's some debate about what times means here. Um, It seems fairly safe to assume it's years, um, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make a huge difference. But why? Why is Nebuchadnezzar being sent off to live like an animal and eat grass like an ox? Well, in verse 25, we get the answer. So that everyone would know that the God of heaven is king over all, giving his power and authority to whomever he will. Nebuchadnezzar must give up his ego and recognize that every ounce of power and status he has comes from Daniel's God, the God of Israel. Now we have to be careful when reading the Old Testament not to take everything that happens and blindly apply it directly to ourselves. However, in this case, the point is clear and I think transfers comfortably or uncomfortably to our day and our culture. God will not allow human pride to go unchallenged. As created beings, we cannot go around claiming God's glory as our own. Whether we do so by our speech or by our actions makes no difference. Solomon had much to say about pride in the book of Proverbs. For example, in Proverbs 16, He says, the Lord detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And in chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Walter Dunnett describes pride as 
a sinful being shifting ultimate confidence from God to themselves. And we'll see as we read the passage that that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. But how easy is it for us to do? If you're anything like me, it's too easy. My first response to most problems is, well, how can I fix it? How long do we struggle on with things before we turn to God for help? How often do we wade through difficulties for ages and ages without ever giving God a thought? And the danger only increases when things are going well, don't they? It's too easy to forget to thank God for our successes and our blessings. That exam result, that new job, the new car or the house we've worked so hard for. How often do we in effect say something like, Is not this the great thing I've gained for myself and my family by my hard work and abilities? So we have to take care because God will not have his glory stolen from him. Like Nebuchadnezzar or the verses in Proverbs 16, if we live as if we are independent of him, as if we are powerful to lead our own lives, he will bring us back to earth with a crash. We see that happen in the next bit of our passage with Nebuchadnezzar. But there's something else going on here as well. If all these verses told us is that God judged Nebuchadnezzar for his pride and that we better watch out lest the same thing happen to us, we wouldn't be able to read that outpouring of praise to the Most High God at the beginning of the passage. We've followed this chapter so far as it's shown us the end result. Praise to Almighty God. We've seen the warning that God will not let pride go unchallenged. And now we get to opportunities, chances to turn from pride into the grace of God. In verse 28 it says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. We don't know why there was a year's gap before Nebuchadnezzar's vision came true. It might be that for a while he was frightened into obeying God. Or maybe... God waited until this particularly proud moment in Nebuchadnezzar's life to bring his judgment to bear. Regardless of the precise reasoning behind it, I think it is safe to say that it's God's grace. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Daniel asked Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27 to turn from his sin, to repent and acknowledge God, so that he wouldn't have to endure the judgment that was decreed. 
Here we see Nebuchadnezzar being given time to change his ways. And how much better would it have been for him if he had? Nebuchadnezzar had more reason than most for an inflated ego. From the roof of his palace where it took place, he was overlooking two of the seven ancient wonders of the world. He was a wealthy ruler and an accomplished builder. In his pride, as he looked at his city, he refused to acknowledge the king of kings, the reason or the source for his success. In that moment, and in many others, Nebuchadnezzar chose to claim all the power and the resulting glory as his own. He saw himself as the creator-sustainer god of Babylon. He may have been given time after he was first given the vision, but not so now. While the words were still on his lips, the most powerful ruler on earth is reduced to a bumbling buffoon. He who considered himself the founder of Babylon's great civilization is driven from it. The animal language used to describe him here is typical of similar situations described in the same culture. People who were removed from their societies. And the overwhelming picture is one of isolation. Seven times pass by before Nebuchadnezzar is able to acknowledge the king of the universe. But isn't even this seven times of pitiful loneliness grace from God? Yes, he is suffering some of the consequences of his actions. But to what end? He suffers so that he might turn to the one true God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, part of it says... My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And one commentator summarizes the application of this perfectly here. A man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is only human. Nebuchadnezzar needed to see the very core of his weakness and insufficiency to be able to understand the truth that the God of the Bible is almighty. And thank God for his grace, because you and I can be every bit as blind as Nebuchadnezzar. We can all ignore his glory, claim it for ourselves, give it to others, in any number of ways in our sinful rebellion. And yet God does not leave us there. Nebuchadnezzar had opportunities to follow God before he was judged, but he ignored them. And so God dragged him down to the depths, confronting Nebuchadnezzar with the truth about himself. We would do well to learn from his mistake instead of continuing to make our own. So we've heard Nebuchadnezzar describe the inevitable result of his experiences. We've heard about the warning he received and the gracious opportunities he was afforded. Opportunities to turn from his pride to the king of kings. Finally, though, we'll see the hope. Repentance leading to restoration. In verse 36 it says, At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. In his letter, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't go into detail about his time under God's judgment. 
All we know is that it works. After the foretold seven times, he looks to heaven, a picture of acknowledgement and recognition. And in verses 34 to 37, as well as the existence of the letter at all, show the extent of his change of heart. He is proclaiming to his entire empire that the God of heaven rules, that Yahweh is the source of his power and success. And as he does so, he is restored, restored to his sound mind, his rule, and his prior success. Nebuchadnezzar was warned about his sin. He chose to continue in his pride and suffered the consequences of that pride. But in the midst of this, he was afforded opportunities to repent. He had chances to turn from his chosen path. Even though it took a long time and being sent out into the depths of isolation like an animal, when he did eventually repent, he was restored to all of the blessing he had before. We find ourselves in a similar but far better position. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was sent out into the wilderness on account of his own sin. But we have one who was sent out because of our sin, on our behalf. John 1, chapter, uh, John chapter 1, verse 10 to 13 say, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus was rejected by humankind. And when he died on the cross, in our place he was rejected by God. He endured the most complete and utter isolation to pay the cost for our own pride, a cost that we could never pay. Nebuchadnezzar was restored to his rule. But Jesus makes us part of God's eternal family. When we receive Jesus, acknowledging him as Lord and asking him for forgiveness, we become children of God. We've seen in this whole passage how God is supremely in control. He will receive the glory. It's inevitable. We've received the warning together with Nebuchadnezzar that God is set against sin. He will challenge our pride, calling us to recognize him now. And like Nebuchadnezzar, we have a choice, an opportunity to repent of our pride or face God's judgment. We have the assurance of restoration of the truest kind if we do turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Restoration to the family of God, to the life we were designed to live. And if we're already part of God's family, we have the total confidence that comes from knowing that our God is completely in control. In control to change hearts and minds and to lead us through every step of this life, every challenge and onwards to an eternity with him. So before we take communion and remember how that was achieved, let's praise God by singing the words that Jake read to us at the beginning of the service remembering that God has exalted Christ to the highest place.